0: Well, no surprise to anyone listening, I'm sure, Uh, long waits to see specialists in our hospital system. Uh, No surprise in that. We've heard about that, not just over the last little while, but essentially for years now, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. In fact, you could be fooled looking at the the article in the uh, the paper today, where they've got a table of uh, waiting times where it says, for instance, uh, general surgery, it's uh, 11 at the RAH, 47 at the... QEH36 at the uh, Lowell and I looked at that and thought, days, that's not too bad. Reading on, it's actually months. That's how long it takes to, to get seen by a specialist at these places. And it doesn't matter whether it's ear, nose and throat or orthopaedic or... Uh, respiratory or urology or neurology, they're, they're all in the the multiple months 58 to see a neurologist at the RA or the Queen Elizabeth 45 at Flinders 20 at the Women's and Children's Months, unbelievable uh, We have put in a call to the Health Minister He's unavailable, we'll get a statement from his office in, in a tick, but on the line, Associate Professor Elizabeth DeBars, good morning Elizabeth Good morning to you and to all your listeners, from the Nursing Midwifery uh, Federation uh, you, you'd know about this firsthand, obviously, and the concern is, well, as as a nursing organisation, you, you've got to put up with the frustration of patients.
1: Look, uh, it is uh, really disconcerting, to say the least. I mean, we are all about um, making sure that patients in our community can receive the care they need and deserve, and it is extremely frustrating because uh, our members really see uh, both ends of the spectrum. They see when people are... In chronic pain uh, and in um, dire straits and they're often um, entering the system at the really truly what we call the pointy end which is um, in the emergency departments because they're not being able to be um, seen and have their issues resolved um, much earlier. So part of the problem with our health system quite frankly and it's something that we've been talking to, uh, to politicians and bureaucrats for a long time now um, is that we seem to place a, an enormous amount of resources um, uh, at that end, but we seem to miss the mark on preventative and primary healthcare solutions. Um, and there are, uh, sadly, um, complex and uh, reasons for that. Um, but really, if you visualise um, a cliff uh, with people falling off it and the ambulances are at the bottom... Um, retrieving all the people who've fallen off the cliff. That's how our current system operates, whereas what we think should happen is that you really need to fence off that top of the cliff and avoid people from falling off in the first place. That would be the much better way of uh, managing our system, which would be better for people uh, and it would be better um, from a cost perspective as well.
0: All right. So the the answer here is what? Obviously, finding more staff, but that means funding positions and and trying to encourage doctors who are looking at specialising to to get into that and and put in the hours required.
1: Yes. Yeah, so look, I think there's a combination of things. We need to address the short term. From a short term perspective, you're absolutely spot on. We need to. Make sure that there are adequate numbers of specialists and adequate numbers of workforce, including um, um, the nurses, and uh, uh, who can uh, assist in performing those procedures. And so, there's yes, there's significant workforce challenges in achieving just that because I think the problem is there's this continuing competition between the urgent and emergent care uh, and those what we would call as so-called electives, which really, when you when you consider The condition of some of these people. I mean, you have to question why it's called elective procedures because they really are debilitating conditions that they have Mm. that seriously impact on their lives, um, which I think, you know, from a broader perspective, has a very serious both um, community consequence but also economic one. I mean, if you're in chronic pain or you can't breathe effectively and efficiently, um, how can you go to work? Yes. Um, And therefore, that has a broader impact on our society as a whole. Um, But uh, putting that aside, I think one of the primary issues here is the failure, once again, to avoid these problems or have systems in place to do that. So many years ago, there was a proposal, which we were very um, highly supportive of, which was to ensure that the federal government funded all activities relating to health Mm. um, and then the state delivered those services. The problem we have is that there is such a funding split at the moment and responsibility split that there are so many people falling through the holes of the system. So our states do a magnificent or you know, attempt to do a magnificent job and our clinicians in particular are doing all that they can possibly. Um, to try and um, uh, rectify the situation. But again, they are down the bottom of the cliff with the people who've already gone over the edge. What we need, again, is we need to have the barrier up the top, avoiding people falling off. So we have been advocating for um, uh, to ensure that from a preventative perspective that there are more um, clinicians of all varieties, but uh, especially having regard in our sector to the expertise and capabilities of nurse practitioners and advanced practice nurses to help people avoid uh, the problems. I'll give you an example. Mm. And we we have in this country, in Australia, we have 5% of the population, the whole population, and it increases with age, people with type 2 diabetes. And if their diabetes could be better managed, better controlled, and in fact, ideally even avoided in the first place because that is the form of diabetes that is um, um, not um, hereditary it's more like a, a more genetic it's more avoidable as it were and um, then uh, we would have a significant impact I mean we're, we're talking about 1.3 million people in Australia mm. um, with those with that condition and uh, having that unmanaged and untreated or not particularly well managed, to be ad hoc management, and does have very serious consequences for their uh, medium to long term health and short term I should say. But um, if we had some more primary and preventative healthcare systems uh, uh, and practices in place, we think we would have a significant impact on improving the health of people generally and keeping them out of hospital. And, And because there is this very um, arbitrary split between who's responsible and who pays. Um, we have found over a period of time that the um, state has exited from um, any avoidance strategies, uh, and and they have you know very little um, money or incentive to do it. Yeah. Uh, but we keep trying to pull them back and say, look, stop dealing with the consequences. If that is the most expensive and the least productive way of dealing with these issues. You've got to front-end it. We've got to stop people from getting sick as much as we can in the first instance. Yep. And then um, and then we'll have uh, quite a lot of room, I think, for people who really can't avoid those issues, you know, accidents and uh, other
0: problems. Elizabeth, it seems to be also, for people who can afford it, the argument for, for private health really jumps out here, doesn't it, ultimately?
1: Uh, look, it does, and look, we we have a, a great respect and regard for the pri- private health system here in South Australia and elsewhere too. Um, we do think that they perform an extremely valuable role. Um, we certainly know that they were absolutely essential to the um, system continuing to function during COVID because the way they were able to partner with the um, public health system. So, you know, all kudos to them, and uh, they certainly have a very important role to play. Yeah. Um, but we also need to have equal regard, I think. I mean, we, we wouldn't like to get to a system, I don't think, Um. Well, certainly from not our perspective, where... Uh, really, it is just essentially user pays, and if you if you can't afford it, well, yeah, that's just too bad, and exactly. you're placed on the
0: junk heap. No, well, that's that's why we've got a wonderful health system in in this country for so yes. long. We just got to deal with the delays and uh, and somehow get around them through the the ways you've outlined in part. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time this morning.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for
0: yours. Elizabeth DeBars here from the Nursing and Midwifery Federation. Uh, a statement from the uh, Health Minister saying we inherited long delays in our system when David Spears and the Liberals were in government just over a, years, a year ago but have made significant improvements since coming to office. Well, that, that ignores the transforming health debacle that... The Libs inherited when they came to office, but, you know, the political blame game has uh, its role in the system, obviously. It uh, goes on the overdue waiting list for elective surgery, down by 40% from 4258 patients in March 22 to five two two five seven one as of this week, so down by around 2,000. Uh, we've invested more than $4 billion extra into our health system. Specialist outpatient waiting times continue to improve. The specialist outpatient quarterly report shows 56 outpatient services in metro hospitals reduced overall maximum waiting times by between two weeks and 33 months compared to the previous report. Our hospital's working hard to reduce outpatient wait times and pleased to see improvements. All very well and good unless you're in chronic pain waiting for someone to see you.